0: you have your Bibles with you, I want to ask you to turn to Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Please feel free to take that. Turn the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter. One of the most famous, most influential, most widely listened to preachers, In the mid-20th century, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had no formal preaching plan. He preached as the Spirit of God led him. Once he preached from the account of Jesus meeting with the woman at the well for, I think it was 14 weeks. And when he was asked, why are you preaching from the same passage week after week? Lloyd-Jones responded that he would preach from that passage until the Holy Spirit of God did not reveal to him anything new. That he needed to see or anything new that he wanted to say. And so by way of explanation, <laughs> we come again this morning to the 10th chapter of Deuteronomy for the sixth week in a row, but it's not without precedent. I just want you to know that. <laughs> to let you know as well that as promised in the blast this week, we will not be getting to chapter 11. But also, as a way of illustrating that lingering with the Lord, lingering with the Lord can be really beneficial to us. Lingering with the Lord can inspire our hearts with awe. Because whenever we rush in life, we miss. When we rush washing the dishes, we leave little pieces of food on the plate. When we rush from one appointment to the other, we miss people or things to see along the way. When we rush through a conversation, something important always gets missed and is left unsaid. But when we linger, when we linger, we have the opportunity to see more and to experience so much more. And so it truly is with that hope that we return again this week to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Actually, just one verse in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and that's verse 20. But I'm going to ask you to stand even for one verse because this is the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 20 this is the word of the Lord fear the Lord your God and serve him hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name now let's pray together father we ask you as we ask you week by week to honor your promise to bless this reading and hearing of your word and we pray again for uh, the illumination of your Holy Spirit, to, to bring light, to shine light on your word, to shine light in our hearts or to expose what needs to be exposed and to change what needs to be changed. So we come uh, submissive to you and to your word this morning, uh, seeking your will and your way in our lives. So we commit ourselves in this time in your word to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Deuteronomy chapter ten verse twelve through the end of chapter eleven, uh, together is uh, a unit forms a speech, or we might call it a sermon, that Moses gives to the people as they stand on the plains of Moab, ready to enter into the promised land. And in this sermon, Moses uh, Moses sums up some of the grand themes that he's already brought before the people earlier in the book of, De- book, of De- book of Deuteronomy. It also serves as a transition. As Moses moves into the law. So if you look in your Bible and you flip through beginning in chapter 12 and you just look at some of the headings you find there, you'll see that it's about specific laws. Where to worship, who to worship, uh, laws that govern marriage and feasts and court and going to war, all sorts of different laws are the next 20 chapters in the book of Deuteronomy. But these are the laws that are going to govern the lives of God's people as they move into the promised land their life as a particular nation is going to begin in earnest then when they take possession of the land. And they need to know how it is they are supposed to live their lives as people, specifically chosen by God, as people living lives of faith and obedience to God, the one and only true and living God. And so this sermon and these chapters is key in motivating these people, to live the life that God has called and is calling them to live. And that's why we've been looking at Deuteronomy for, lo, these many, many months. God planted us here. God chose this place, this place where we're seated as the corporate gathering place of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, just as he chose the promised land for ancient Israel. And from this place, you and I are to radiate, radiate out into the community, And to emit wherever we go the love and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are we going to do it? How was ancient Israel to do it? Look in verse 20. You know, organizations, churches among them, they'll often hire consultants to come and, and to work with the organization. And that consultant will spend hours with the members of the organization hammering out a vision statement, hammering out a purpose statement helping to communicate what it is that they hope to achieve and accomplish as an organization. So this morning, I'm suggesting that if you are choosing a verse for your life, a theme verse, a mission statement for your life, you might want to consider this one as worthy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. And that's why I want to linger over it this morning. Uh, It's a verse that can guide our life, give vision to our lives. Fear the Lord your God. And serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. Fear the Lord. Actually, that's all we're going to talk about this morning. This one part of verse 20. Fear the Lord. This practice of fearing the Lord, it must be vital for God's people. It must be. Because Moses has already mentioned it three different times Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. And then right here in chapter 10, back up in verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Fear the Lord, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. Clearly, it's important for God's people. And as we have seen as we've looked at these passages in the past, the word fear used here means to, to honor. It means to stand in awe of or to respect. And the reason for that definition is that fundamentally this word means to to withdraw. This word means to to withdraw, to to separate or or, or to flee from. And the reason for that definition is because fundamentally we are separated from God. Because God is God and newsflash, we are not God. God is God, we are not God. Isaiah 55 verse 8. You know this well. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways declares the Lord. And to help us really, really understand just how great that divide is. To, to understand how, how, how gaping and divergent this, this disparity that exists between us and God, he goes on to say in verse 9. For as high, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's no one alive who would argue the fact that the heavens are separated, segregated from the earth. No doubt about it. And no segregation on earth can come close to the segregation that exists between God and between us as human beings. And no human can legislate that segregation away. On our own merit, you and I, as we are, not one single one of us would ever be able to sit where God sits or eat where God eats or drink from the same fountain from which God drinks or live on the street where God lives. Never. He's too far above us, too far beyond us. And that's the idea behind this word fear. God is separated. He's beyond us. You know, you and I, without any meaningful basis, without any meaningful basis, attempt to segregate ourselves from people who are really like us. The variations between us are barely perceptible nuances. The differences between us as people, barely perceptible nuances among people who are all made in the image of God. But between us and God, that segregation is fairly founded and it's firmly fixed. The segregation between us and God is fairly founded and it is firmly fixed. No one has to legislate it. No one has to proclaim it to be so. It just is and it's there for all of us to see. And so our natural instinct is to withdraw or to flee from someone who is so other than we are. Because God is awesome. And just in his godness, we are overwhelmed. And that's the basis of our fear, the otherness of God, the awesomeness of God. And so what does that mean? If God is so awesome, if God is so other than we are, every day of our lives, we should stand in awe of God. Every day of our lives, we should have an awe moment. We should have a wow moment because we are so amazed by what the Lord has done for us. How far back, how far back do you have to go to remember a moment when you were amazed by God? How far back? Something that you know the Lord did, something that had the imprint of of God all over it, it could be a truth that you discovered for the first time that amazed you. Something in his word that you never noticed before. Maybe it's a situation in your life where God truly did for you work all things together for good. And so you are so amazed that you just say, wow, God, you amaze me by your work in my life. I don't know what the moment is for you. I don't know what the situation is for you. I don't know how far back you have to go to find one of those moments. But I know this. If you and I are not having those fearsome moments in our lives those moments of awe and amazement over God, I guarantee you that something is amiss in our lives and in our relationship with God. Because God is never anything but amazing. All the time. And sometimes God just overwhelms us with His goodness and His glory. He works in such a way that we don't even have to think about it. We don't have to to, to pray about it. We say, wow, Lord, you are amazing. But here... In verse 20, this comes to us in the command form. Fear the Lord. You, 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 me. Fear the Lord. That's the command of Moses. And so that must mean that you and I need to be on the lookout for. You and I need to be listening for in ways that we may have never looked before, in ways that we may never have listened before. For the glory, or the goodness, or the greatness or the grace of God that will awe us. It's everywhere around for us to see. You know, if I said, Fred, that's Fred, by the way, that played for us this morning. (laughs) I'm so glad you're here, Fred. (laughs) If I said, Fred, come and play middle C. Fred could come up here and he could play middle C on the piano and you would hear with your ear middle C. But there's so much more to hear than middle C. There are also overtones to hear. When middle C is played, these uh, harmonic series above middle C. But you have to listen for it. But once you listen for those overtones, then you are never again satisfied with just hearing middle C. You want to hear middle C and you want to hear all the overtones that go with that note. And so it is in our lives. We shouldn't be satisfied with just plain old middle sea we are to listen for the overtones of god and maybe this is a trite example but you know some people are content to just look up at the sky and say wow there is the sun but people who stand in fear and awe of the lord say wow there's the sun and the sun jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus, the Son, is the exact representation of the being of God. He sustains that Son. He holds that Son in place for just a little while longer by His powerful Word. And when that Son is no longer necessary, the Son will say the, the Word and it will disappear. It's looking for the glory of God. So, what are you looking for? And what are you seeing? Just the Son? Or the Son Behind the sun. God is always amazing. How are you being amazed by Him? We just sang Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. You know, what an awe-inspiring moment it was when the grace of God revealed to John Newton, the author of that hymn, the slave-trading, barbaric-behaving John Newton. And the grace of God revealed to him the depths of his sin, the consequences of his sin, the fear in which he should stand before God because of his sin. But what an awe-inspiring moment when that same grace relieved John Newton, of his fears. Because the grace of God forgave him of those sins. The grace of God ushered him into a relationship with the God from whom he had been separated. And so the grace inspired fear and the grace relieved the fear all at the same time. And John Newton was amazed. I hope every one of you here in this room who has a relationship with Jesus Christ is still amazed by the hour you first believe. The moment in your life when the Holy Spirit of God Himself came to take up residence within you. That is an amazing moment, wouldn't you agree? And I hope you remember it. I remember it distinctly 44 years ago, but I don't care. I still remember the joy I felt. I remember the happiness, and I distinctly remember thinking, nobody believes what happened to me, but I don't care because I know what's happened to me and it's true and it's real. But how sad and empty. And two-dimensional my Christian life would be and your life would be if I was always having to go back 44 years to find something that amazed me because that moment in time is getting further and further away with every passing moment. Every day, every day, you and I should be amazed by God. But we have to work at it because it seems to go against our nature as busy, rushing people really goes against fearing the Lord. Henry Nouwen, in preparation for writing his book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, maybe some of you have read it, he went to St. Petersburg, and he went to the Hermitage, one of the, the biggest, oldest art museums in the world. And day after day and hour after hour, Nouwen sat in front of the painting by Rembrandt by the same name, The Return of the Prodigal Son. He just was drinking in that painting, trying to see every nuance about it, get from it every message that it had to give to him. But he also noticed, as he sat there hour after hour, day after day, that hundreds of other people passed by that same picture. And he noticed that they didn't stand long in front of it. I believe that he said the amount of time was 10 seconds, but I wasn't sure. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if I can find any information on how long people look at paintings. And so I found an article. It was written by James Elkins. He's an art critic and historian from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Pretty impressive institution, wouldn't you agree? Art Institute of Chicago. And Elkins says this, There have been a number of surveys of how visitors interact with paintings in museums. One found that an average viewer goes up to a painting, looks at it for less than two seconds, reads the wall text for another 10 seconds, glances at the painting to verify something in the text, and then moves on. Another survey concluded people looked for a median time of 17 seconds. The Louvre found that people looked at the Mona Lisa for 15 seconds. Can you imagine? Probably the most famous piece of art uh, in all of history, people look at it for 15 seconds. What are these people missing when they rush by these great works of art. Well, Elkins goes on to conclude, all this goes to show that our encounters are usually brief encounters or they are non-encounters, non-encounters. And look, we're talking about one individual piece of art viewed by people who have at least some interest in art or they wouldn't be in an art museum in the first place. What about looking at God, (laughs) the God? of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Many people are interested in Him. You're interested in Him, or you wouldn't be here this morning. Would you characterize your encounters with our amazing God and His amazing Word as brief encounters or non-encounters? Or are they something more? I want to read to you a description that Elkins writes about a 15th century painting It's called The Weeping Madonna. Listen to all he saw. Madonna faces in Jesus' direction, but doesn't look at him. Her hands are pressed together gently and firmly. The fingers of one hand resting in the depressions between the fingers of the other. Her little fingers are held apart from the others, but slightly bent. The pads of the fingers push a little against one another. They're interesting hands, careless and yet tense, spontaneous but fixed in place. Her face has the same deliberation. Her lips are pressed closed, but her teeth are not clenched. The corner of her mouth has that slight indentation that is an infallible sign of tension, the gentlest echo of the deep groove that forms when the mouth opens in grief. Her mouth is set but not too hard. Her hands and her mouth are enough to tell the story, but the painting is really about her eyes. They are masterpieces of modulated expression. Her left eye, the one farthest from us, is extremely sad. It turns away from us and away from Jesus into the dark folds of her veil. The nearer eye, if you look at it alone, seems to look back at you with an unsettling, abstracted glance. Together, her two eyes give us a face that is just barely focused on its object. Her eyelids are puffed from crying, and both eyes are red. The capillaries in her corneas are swollen, coloring her eyes dark, deep pink. Tears are dripping slowly down her cheeks. The further eye has two drops, and a third down on the cheek. The near eye is overflowing with tears. You can see the brim. Lucent on the lower lid. One tear has formed toward the back of the eye and another is just dropping from the front. Two tears have fallen ahead of them, one on her cheek and another that is about to swerve and run into her mouth. Do you see what you can see when you take time to notice something beyond, (laughs) wow, that's a really good painting. How amazed you can be When you really look, true amazement comes from really looking and studying the nuances and the lines and the brush strokes and the brilliance of the detail and the symbolism. Everything, everything that Elkins describes is actually in that picture. But you cannot see it in 17 seconds. You cannot see it in 17 seconds. And so he contrasts this usual experience of 17 seconds with an elderly woman that he spoke to that comes to the Art Institute. She's been coming for decades, three or four times a week, and during her lunch hour, and she sits in front of the same Rembrandt painting every time she comes. And so Elkins went to her and he said, how long have you been doing this? She said, oh, I've been doing this for decades, for decades. So be conservative, say decades just means two. And she comes three to four times a week and takes an entire lunch hour. That's 3,000 hours this woman has been looking at the same painting. What was happening between the woman and the painting? And what did she hope to encounter from her regular uh, visits to it? So Elkins concludes by writing this. Christian meanings have ebbed from serious art, but that does not mean we have lost reasons to see artworks slowly, with care and attention, time, patience, immersion. These are qualities that some art continues to call for whether it's Christian or not. And these are the same qualities that God deserves from every one of us every day if we will live in fear of Him as we are commanded to do. He demands our time, our attention, our patience instead of our hurried glance, our immersion. In His general revelation as we stand in creation, in His special revelation as we immerse ourselves And the word that God has given to us, that's what is going to draw a wow from us every day. And this is why we will fear God. This is why we'll be amazed by Him and stand in awe of Him without having to go back 44 years into the past. Our amazement should have only increased from the hour we first believed and never diminished. And if it has diminished, if your amazement has diminished, The problem is not with God. The problem is not with God. The problem is not with the story of God. Because let me ask you, what part of the story of a God who by speaking the word created the entire universe is not amazing? What part of that story is not amazing? What part of the story of that same God putting on flesh and coming to earth to live among human beings is not amazing? What part of the story of the creator of the universe allowing himself to be captured by and crucified by mere humans is not shockingly amazing? How is it that the cross could ever become commonplace? And what part of the story of the hope we have and the inheritance that's waiting for us and the eternal life that's waiting for us is not absolutely and utterly amazing? You tell me, what part of it is not amazing? Amazing. If we're not amazed by it, it's not the fault of the story of God, and it's not the the fault of the God of the story. But a quick, less than daily glance from us in God's direction and toward his word is going to leave us mostly uninspired and unchallenged. We come to Jesus that we think we know so well every day wanting more and more of him, more and more about Jesus, more of his saving fullness, see, more of his love, who died for me. We come to the word of God that we think we know so well, listening for the overtones, listening for the undertones, looking for the fine line that we never noticed before, the beautiful brush strokes that we missed the last time we looked at the same truth. And since we know that we can't see everything on our own from our own limited perspective, we join ourselves together with other people in our community groups and we open the Word of God together and we listen to what the Holy Spirit of God has revealed from His truth to other people and they share it with us and we say, wow, that's beautiful. I never saw that before. I never noticed that before. God is so amazing. There's so much of God's Goodness and greatness and grace, it exists everywhere for us to observe and enjoy, to constantly remind us of the segregation that should keep us apart from God and to remind us of the Jesus who brought us together. Fear God, Moses says to the people on the plains of Moab. Fear God, Moses says to the people in the pews at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. This is a worthy purpose for our lives, a worthy vision for our lives. And we only gain in working toward it because the fuller God becomes to us, the more glorious, the bigger God becomes, then the fuller becomes our faith. And the fuller becomes our trust. And the fuller becomes our love and our joy and our peace. And the smaller and the more impotent Become those things that would steal your faith and steal your trust and steal your joy and steal your peace. Fear the Lord. And what do you think the impact is going to be on our community? If we, as a people of God, fear the Lord and are always in awe of Him, how inspired are you to tell the story, to tell the gospel? Cause let me tell you: If the gospel is stale to you, if it seems not worth telling, you go out and tell it to someone who hasn't heard before, <laughs> and you watch how fresh and new and exciting the story becomes to you. As you think deeply about the gospel and what it means, as you think deeply about how it is you're going to present and share the gospel with this particular person at this particular moment in time, the story's going to become fresh to you and you're going to be struck by how strange the words of the story seem to you. How bizarre. How extraordinary is the story of the gospel, is it not? If it were an ordinary story, it wouldn't be worth telling. But it's not. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. And the more you and I tell the story, the more amazed we're going to be by it. And the more we're going to stand in fear and awe of God. And so you're blessed by telling it. And absolutely the person is blessed who hears it and embraces the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Your God and my God is an awe-inspiring God. And in all of our lives, all of our lives, we're to keep growing in awe and fear of him. Let's think again about John Newton. The slave trader turned believer in Christ turned preacher. His amazement was not just over the hour he first believed. John Newton did not keep going back to that place. Where does he draw us in his beautiful hymn? Where does he lead us in his hymn? Not backward, but forward. When we've been there. We, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, you and I, shining as brightly as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. See, the hour we first believed, the moment we first believed, that's moment one. That's day one in a series of days that has no end. A series of days where you and I praise our amazing, awe-inspiring God. Ours is supposed to be an ever-deepening, ever-deepening intimacy with the Lord that will never, never leave us bored, but always amazed and always ready to pray. So the movement of amazement in your life, in my life, the movement of amazement is not backward. It's always forward. And if it's not heading that direction in your life, if it's not there right now, then then you need to ask the Holy Spirit of God to give you these moments of amazement. You need to come to the Word of God and ask the Holy Spirit as you come to the Word of God to amaze you by some truth about the character of God or the calling of God that you've never noticed before. You've got to ask the Holy Spirit to, to give you insight into his word about the true meaning and the true purpose of life that you've never seen because you've rushed by it so quickly. Ask the Spirit of God to give you fresh eyes of amazement just for the glory and the splendor of his creation. Because if you and I, in this time, and in this place that God has apportioned to us, In this time, in this place, if we will truly live as people who fear the Lord, then our time, this time, and our place, this place, cannot miss being transformed by the awesome power of our amazing God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are an awesome God. And Father, if we have missed that in our lives because we have rushed by you so quickly, because we've stood before you for 10 seconds or 17 seconds, thinking we know all there is to know, thinking that we have seen in you all there is to see, then we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. Father, we will never get to the end of you. We will never plumb the depths of your character. Your goodness, your glory, your greatness, your grace. Never. We will never see it all. Over 10,000 years upon 10,000 years won't be time enough to enjoy you and to be amazed and fresh in fresh and new ways by who you are. So forgive us, Lord, when we think we've already arrived in that place. And Lord, pray now that we would be people who would come before you. Seeking to fear you, to be awed by you. Lord, it'll take the work of your spirit and the truth of your word as you reveal yourself through it to us. Lord, I pray that you would be doing that. I, Lord, I can't imagine what we could accomplish as a church full of people who truly fear you. Who truly stand in awe and amazement of you who never tire of of hearing and telling the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, may it ever be on our lips in fresh and new ways as we tell the old, old story, the unchanging story, over and over again in our time, in our place. Lord, help us to fear you, and then we entrust ourselves to you and the consequences and the results that come from people who fear the Lord.